Welcome to the Alpha Dude Podcast with Michael Pulser. What would it be like if you knew that you were unstoppable and you could live life on your terms? Better yet, how good would it feel knowing that on your deathbed, you had fulfilled all your potential and more? Life on Earth has a beginning and an end. It's what you do in the middle that counts. Let's look at how to make that part even better. Have you ever watched a movie or been in a situation when you walk in the middle of something and you don't know exactly what's going on? Perhaps you're looking at some characters on TV. There's three or four of them. Or there's three or four colleagues. You walk in on your first day of the job. You don't know the hierarchy. You don't know who is in control immediately. You can see that some people are maybe dressed differently. Some other people have different attributes. Some physically look more fit or muscular. Others look maybe a little bit overweight. Whatever it is, it's sometimes elusive what actually makes a difference. You can pry their minds or line up the IQs on a piece of paper. And the fact is that the smartest ones are not always the ones that are in charge. So what is the difference that makes a difference. That's what this episode will focus on. And this episode will focus on frames and frame control. Basically, the person with the greatest, strongest frame is generally the leader. So what is this frame all about? Well, frame control is based all about how we put meaning on things. Now, before we even go there, we have to accept the fact that many, many things are malleable. That means that they're either subjective, that they're actually relative, things that can be changed. Once you accept that things can be changed and accept this as a presupposition, then you can move forward and make the changes about the situation. We all do this every day without thinking about it, but by being intentional about it, like everything else we talk about, that is where the gold is. And it's all about changing the meaning essentially making the meaning positive or negative, although there is a vast spectrum between. Consider, for example, the great writer Viktor Frankl. He was in the Nazi prison concentration camps, and he was also a psychiatrist, and he managed to survive all of the torture. And not only do that, he thrived. He actually developed a system of thinking. He grew physically in many ways, mentally in other ways, emotionally in other ways. And while he was growing, all the people around him were dying. And there was nothing that was different. He wasn't treated any better. He wasn't treated any differently. In fact, in many instances, he was treated worse than some of the others. Yet, it was all about his perspective. It was all about his frame. And his frame was that he will never allow anything like this to ever happen again. So he had an insane motivation to get out of that prison camp and get out there on his own and tell the world about what happened. Interestingly, if you've caught up on Amazon Prime, they've got that awesome series, The Man in the High Castle, and that looks at what would have happened if the war was won by Germany and Japan. And it's really interesting bit of a tangent. If you can watch it, you have to check it out. But back to frames. So by taking the dominant frame, it puts you in control. Now this sounds all harsh because it sounds like a dominance, a hierarchy with other people, but it all starts with you. Once you have 
that strong internal belief system that has absolute conviction, then everything else flows from it. Now, pay attention to what I said, that it's internal. Once you can have it on an internal basis, you start to develop self-trust. So before you can even think about applying this to external situations like relationships and other people, it's imperative that we do it on ourselves. The way we do this is that we look at our core beliefs and we examine ourselves. Some people look at themselves and they think about their values and what they like and what they don't like. But the fact is, it's more helpful if you look at objectively what's happened in your life. Have you made things happen? What is your station in life right now? And how much have you had to do with it? Once you can see objectively what happens, it takes away the intention and puts in reality. What I find the real power is that once you accept reality and understand where you are and learn that intentionality and reality are actually related, you can then combine the processes and develop the life you want. Now this is really deep, so we'll get into this later, but just a few ways in which you can really develop that strength of character is that, number one, learning to trust yourself, and that is meaning to have integrity, to to do what you say and say what you mean. Once you can really be honest with yourself, then you will start to trust yourself. Number two is taking on the aspects of the Alpha Dude system as we talked about. That is the attitude, having the right mindset, the amplitude, the way that you talk, but not only the way that you talk, the words that you use, the meanings that you associate, the way that you talk to yourself. Do you say to yourself that you're no good? Do you look at things in a negative light? If you're given an opportunity to do something that you've never done before, do you complain saying that this is not what you're made for or do you look at this as a new opportunity? What goes on in this department changes the meaning for you so much. And finally, just making sure that you're in the present, making sure that you're here now. And once you are, then you can affect all the change that you've had on the inside and put on the outside. That is where reality happens. So the real masters of framing are probably two guys. I'd say Robert Diltz and John Grindler. Now, Robert Diltz, in around 1980, he formulated what he calls the slight of mouth patterns. And basically, it gives a different perspective or slight of mouth reframe on any situation. Now, he made up 14 of these such patterns. And you can look at anything that's going on in your mind. So step one is look at something that's happening in your head. Say, for example, you've got a challenge at work. You've got someone who's being bossy and it can be like, all right, my my boss is bossy. Well, for lack of better analogy. And using the slight of mouth patterns, you can look at different meanings from this. So, so a few of the 14 includes perhaps the consequence, and that is looking at the consequence of this belief. Your boss is bossy. Well, by definition, that's what bosses are. But if they're being bossy in a way that's mean or demeaning, what will this mean? And what does this mean to the person? Perhaps offering a counterexample, saying that my boss is bossy, you can say, well, I know other bosses that aren't bossy. And what's the difference that makes a difference? Perhaps you can use an analogy and you can say, well, that's how some people operate in their worlds 
And this is how some people respond to that. You can look at meter frames, and that's looking at the picture from a complete perspective, saying that my boss is bossy, fair enough, but I am not limited by this. And I only believe that he's bossy compared to my experiences. Now, as I said, there's 14 of these sleight of mouth patterns. So I won't go through all of these for three reasons. One is so that you can just look it up yourself. Number two is you can meditate on it. And number three, I don't actually know what happens with copyrights once you give out all of everyone's information. So go check out Robert Diltz. Fantastic stuff. He teaches a lot of good stuff on reframing NLP master. And the second one is John Grindler. Now, he is the co-developer of NLP. And in the late 1970s, he developed what is called a six-step reframing. This is all about finding behaviors that don't serve you and looking for the positive intention behind them. So let's say, for example, the bossy boss. That example is got nothing to do with the boss. It's all about you. It's all about me. It's all about us and how we find ourselves in victimhood mode. As soon as you have a problem that's external to yourself, you're not taking responsibility for it. Sure, the other person can have some massive character flaws, but by just ruminating on that, is that going to serve you? It absolutely won't. Can you change so much just by changing the way that you respond to it? Absolutely. And you've seen other people do it as well. So by realizing that it's been kind of protective to be a victim. I mean, as soon as you say that you're a victim, suddenly you don't have responsibility for what happened to you. You've got a way out. You've got a cop out. Suddenly, everything that's gone wrong is something or someone else's fault. Along with that, you get all the sympathy from other people. People are there to help you. There is a lot of positive benefits from being a victim. So... Once we realize that there are positive intentions behind any behavior, even negative behavior, then we can say, well, things are working all right. We're not crazy. If we do something that gives us negative consequences and it's from a negative intention, now that's incredibly self-destructive. But most of us have at some level a positive intention behind bad behavior. Once you realize this, it has two meanings. Number one is that your mind is working well, is not malfunctioning, and you have something really good to work with. And step two, you can simply change the behavior and still use a positive intention. So this is where we look for a few alternatives. What are some other things you could do? What are some thoughts you could have, some actions you can take, some steps that you could take right now that could change things around. And the most important part of this whole six-step reframing is to look at everything and say, does this fit me? Am I going to keep with this? So if you say, well, my boss is bossy. I can see that I used it as a cop-out by being a victim. I got some sympathy from other people. That was a positive intention. I choose no longer to do this. In fact, I choose to be the boss. And then you sit down for your ecology check. You're like, hang on, wait a second. I just started in this position and it's not actually physically possible for me to be the boss right now. That 
is not going to sit right with you and that's going to work against you. So that's where the ecology check is so important. Just switch it around and you can say you can try to take absolute responsibility for everything that happens to you. You can try to realize that every time that you become a victim, that you can snap straight out of it, whatever it is, and then check with your ecology, check with yourself and say, is this something that I can live with? And then once the answer is yes, you've just reframed. Of course, the last two steps are to future pace, and that means to do it mentally, envision going through this process, and then doing physically, going through the process and seeing how it works. And once you notice that it works, you get that positive feedback. And as we keep talking about, the meter cognition kicks in. You think about thinking, you think about your thoughts, you think about your life, you think about the actions, and suddenly everything is congruent. You have complete integrity and you start to trust yourself. You start to get the results that you want in your life. So that is reframing. Once you learn about reframing on your inside, on your mindset, then it's really easy to take it to the outside. And this applies to all domains of your life. In your career, let's say you're a salesperson, you're selling something, you probably already do this. If you're selling, let's be generic and say you're a car salesman, somebody is complaining about the car that you're showing them is only four cylinders. Now, obviously, you should take him to a bigger car, but if you wanted to really sell that car, perhaps you could focus on the amazing stereo system. You bring out the positive points. And by showing the positive, it puts things in a positive light and reframes. And that all gets back to what I said at the start. Framing is about making either the positive or the negative amplified. In relationships, the same thing happens again. When you're in a relationship, you can focus on the other person's positive features or the relationship's positive features and build upon it. By focusing on the negative, that is the first stone that's being taken away and destroys relationships. By just focusing on the positive things, whatever the aspect of your life on the external will make all the difference. And that's what good coaches do. And speaking of good coach, I've brought one on today. Casey from KS Coaching is on today to talk about her journey as a coach. While you listen to this, although it's not necessarily about framing, look at the frames that she's used and changed in her journey. Now here is Casey. I've always had a heart for helping, whether I recognized it or not. It even sometimes got me into a little bit of trouble sticking my nose where it maybe shouldn't have been. I can remember as far back as elementary school, daydreaming with my friend Amanda, we would make our plans way into the night on how we were going to save the world. We didn't know how we were going to do it. We just knew we wanted to. Fast forward, when I was 13, I decided I wanted to be a psychiatrist so I could help other people by listening to their problems. I was making big middle school plans to attend Duke University to study psychiatry and pursue my dream. Then I found out how much science and medical training goes into that specific job and how expensive it was to go to Duke. I quickly abandoned the whole idea and immersed myself in a world filled with boys and music and drama and school 
in that order, I'm sure. And by drama, I mean both the kind created in the mind of a teenage girl and the kind where you get to perform on stage. Little did I know the field of helping people was so much bigger than my tiny middle school definition. My name is Casey Steinmetz. I'm a relationship coach and a natural wellness champion. I help people in difficult or complicated relationships learn to communicate with respect and affection. I believe that feeling healthy in body and confident in spirit means more authenticity in communication and subsequently more joy in relationships. I am a biomat addict and a distributor and a yoga teacher. I am so happy in my own skin, but it has certainly been one hell of a journey. It has been anything but a straight line from here to there. Here being a life of blindness to my own self and there being a place of awareness and appreciation for who I am and that my gifts are not like everyone else's. I consider it an honor to call myself a coach and to be trusted by people who want amazing things in their lives because we are all worthy of a life we love, but it does require commitment from us as humans to make it happen. My journey to self-awareness and life satisfaction is somewhat unremarkable. As a young child, my parents divorced quite unamicably, if that's a word, they were not friendly, and a lifetime journey of discovery between self-harming and self-healing had officially begun for me. My dad's fast remarriage was no great surprise to anyone, but jealousy and feelings of less than to a younger, cuter stepsister were a bit of a surprise, hard to recognize or acknowledge. To this day, I still feel a sense of not being as good as, by no fault of anyone else's, merely circumstances, but it set a tone for me at a very young age to hate competing and madly crave the attention of pretty much anyone who would look at me. My mother's remarriage 10 years later would only serve to further affirm my feelings of unimportance and being in the way and feed the fire of craving attention. This also was no fault of hers and she was by no means neglectful. She was just busy and tired. She was a single mom and being the mom of four kids myself, I have definitely come to understand busy and tired. So when I say I turn to immersing myself in a world full of boys, I mean a lot of boys. And I gave them a lot of myself. But there was one, not the first, but my first real love. He was kind and sweet and energetic and giving, and we had a really great year before he left me to go to college four states and a whole time zone away, which is a lot when you're 17. My boyfriend and I were going to try to make a long distance relationship work, but in the days before cell phones and internet, it was a harder challenge, and his new life left little room for me anyway. I got myself into a situation my junior year in high school, three months after he'd left, that created an opportunity for a boy to take a piece of me I didn't really want to give. I didn't admit to myself that I'd been raped until 23 years later. It is even still hard for me to say, I was raped. I said no, but he didn't stop.
like many, I blamed myself. He was a friend and we'd had some flirtations. I chose to go to the empty house with him. Everybody loved him and maybe I did too. That's a hard no, but I was hoping maybe he would love me. I told myself that I wasn't a slut, that I was just desperate for my boyfriend's attention, and that is why I cheated on him. There's no doubt I cheated. Simply by getting in the car with the other guy was a betrayal, but I never really wanted it to go that far. My boyfriend was devastated, and of course so was I, though I couldn't admit it at the time. We broke up and a cycle began for me that would not end for many, many years. I blamed myself for all the pieces of the story and all the pieces of myself I'd given away, which only served to break my heart more and make the craving for attention that much more intense. I had boyfriends whom I didn't treat well or they treated me poorly, but they didn't last longer than a few months at a time. I was too independent to let it matter to me how anyone else felt or how I might actually be punishing myself. My first marriage lasted about 10 years before I left, wanting desperately to connect and genuinely not knowing how. Though I certainly understood that sex had great power, It wasn't until my second husband that I really understood how giving myself physically to someone else wasn't just for sport and that giving myself physically was only a part of a pure surrender to being authentic with and loved by another person. I wish everyone could feel that sense of connection and safety in relationship with another human being. So through all the trauma and drama and the explorations, the course of study I chose to pursue in college was a performance degree, which makes sense because it got me lots of attention. I mean, well, my course of study, which also got me lots of attention, was still boys. But you can't major in sex unless, of course, you're ready to dive into psychiatry. There's that word again. And by that time, I didn't care about the body-brain connection anymore. So I chose a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Music Theater. It was a brilliant, fun time. I learned as much about being comfortable in myself as I did about music theory and the history of Broadway, which is ultimately so much of what college is about anyway, right? Finding what you love on your own terms. Being on stage was truly a thrill, but one of the things I come back to so often was the study of musical and theatrical literature because it was an amazing opportunity for learning in depth about subtext. Much of my practice working with couples, it's so much about learning to communicate, which is based heavily around the art of subtext. Humans are so complicated and we often, often, very often, don't say exactly what we mean, which can be a huge source of conflict and pain. And it isn't only the things we say, the words we use, but also how we say them and what we are doing with our bodies when we say them. I don't doubt that a large part of why we don't always say what we want or feel is largely because we don't know. We don't allow ourselves to fully feel what we need to or slow down and take the time to identify the root issue. But it's always true that not being honest in communication is just one more tool 
to avoid genuine connection. We have so many reasons not to be raw and authentic built into us based on hurts and rejection and pain and trauma from childhood through adulthood. Excuses for not connecting emotionally or physically. It's just too risky, right? But the rewards of an authentic, loving relationship are what makes the world monumentally better. I consider myself insanely lucky to have found a man who works with people in a training and development capacity and his level of self-awareness is also very high. We have taken the time to meet each other in the hard places and though we have not always been successful at getting through them without hurting each other, we have made giant strides in the way we communicate and relate to one another. I submit to you, Exhibit A. Picture this. It's a beautiful evening on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. A conversation between ordinarily self-aware people who consistently work with other people to get desired results through training and coaching. Two people who have a great respect for one another, but occasionally still get caught up in conversations that are less than helpful. Her. It is 1045. Why are they still awake? Stop getting them riled up. Him. It's vacation. They're just having a good time. Her. When do we get to have a good time? Him. What? I thought we were having a good time. You are so ungrateful. All spoken in a shout whisper in our beautiful bedroom of the family cottage overlooking the ocean vista, the conflict in strong opposition to the relaxing venue. Does this type of dialogue or scenario sound all too familiar? This is the Cliff's Notes version of a lively intercourse, I like to call it, between me and my husband last summer that was actually about us wanting to spend more time together. Isn't that what it sounds like? I threatened to leave two days early since it clearly didn't matter if I was there or not, to which he quickly and vehemently responded that I should do just that. So much subtext in our conversations. All I wanted was some of his time and attention without the kids demanding it at the same time. Why those actual words were not used until after we had said some especially nasty and hurtful things to each other remains a mystery. I am, after all, by trade, a coach who specializes in communication and relationships. How could we have possibly gotten it so wrong? It is my hope that I can teach my children what a healthy relationship looks like by my own example. This one may have missed the mark. The very foundation of our families and our communities and even our country and the whole world across the entire globe depends on healthy relationships with one another. In the book, The Power of the Other by Dr. Henry Cloud, he states that specific qualitative relational connectedness which is really just a fancy way of saying meaningful relationships, but I love the way it sounds. Specific qualitative relational connectedness greatly enhances performance and even helps build, fuel, and sustain the physical connections hardwired in the brain. It is in relationships that our minds are actually built. It is in our best interest to ourselves and to the greater good of our communities and the whole world to nurture deep and meaningful relationships. 
being in conflict doesn't have to be in direct opposition to that end. It actually can help strengthen and develop relationship. It is in the space of community that we learn who we are and develop our best selves, no matter where you came from. Child of divorce, teenage victim of date rape, trapped in an emotionally unavailable marriage, these circumstances, these labels, all situations that have molded and shaped who I am today, but I still deserve and expect to live a life of value and purpose and joy and love. None of these labels make good excuses for an unhappy life, but I have to want that life badly enough to work for it. So I do. I make the commitment to pursue personal development and connect with my husband and kids on the regular. Do I always get it right? Of course not but I will never stop trying to connect. And I get the joy of connecting with other people through my work and through volunteering and watching them grow and progress and find their own peace and joy in spite of circumstances that are less than joyful. I work with individuals caught in difficult relationships who either want to make amends and connect on a deeper level or find a way to safely disconnect and move on. No one should be stuck in a relationship that is undermining or devaluing. I also work with new couples, couples who are engaged to be married, considering marriage, or who have recently gotten married. Creating an environment for safe sharing and honest connection in the first months of relationship is an excellent foundation for growing together. If a foundation is established early and couples learn how to authentically communicate in the beginning, the chances for long-term success are significantly higher. I also work with couples who are overall happy together, but who disagree on a key issue and could use some support from someone outside of the emotionally driven situation they're trying to resolve. I also have a huge heart for working with couples who are at a crossroads and are considering a split or a reconciliation and couples who have already separated or divorced and wish to co-parent effectively. This is such an important time in the life cycle of a family to establish respect and empowerment for each parent individually and as a unit. It can be a very challenging atmosphere to create with backstories filled with not only joy and hope and love, but also disappointment, pain, or betrayal. But it is not impossible. I meet people in their life space where they are, one-on-one, in couples and groups, we share tools to help work through difficult situations, dynamics, and emotions. We set a course for shift and perspective if necessary, a place to meet in the middle and compromise, and a commitment to one's own health and wellness. I genuinely love people and want my clients to find joy and contentment in their most important relationships. Visit my website at www.caseysteinmetz.com to download a cheat sheet with tips for how to maintain healthy communication in the midst of conflict. You can also join my online yoga and mindfulness community to help get clarity and confidence so you can have relationships that are more, more pure, more deep, more rich. Whether you come from hurt, rejection, or trauma, or you come from a loving, warm, and happy environment, and you just hope to find someone to meet that high expectation of what it means to be in relationship, there is always a place for growth and authenticity. 
I'll be hosting a video series soon for new couples to ask those important foundational questions. You can find more info on that launch on my website as well or on Facebook. I would welcome the opportunity to connect directly. Find me on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at keyword Casey Steinmetz. Send me a message. Let's schedule a discovery call. Let's take the pieces of our lives that have been broken apart either by our own choices or mistakes or by others who are careless with us. And let's decide if those pieces still fit so we can either throw them out or put them back together to create an environment for deeper, cleaner connection with the ones who really matter. I hope to see you at CaseySteinmetz.com. Be well, friends, and make it fabulous. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. If so, rate it from the place you downloaded it. For any questions, send an email to michaelpulser at gmail.com.